something I want to recommend to you. I know, I know sometimes this is trouble because when I recommend to you, all of a sudden Amazon's at your house pretty quickly, uh, which is okay as long as you're taking the time to read this stuff. But I want to share with you this. I would encourage you to get this book. If you're someone who enjoys studying the Word of God, you're somebody who wants to sit down with a topic like the Kingdom of God, have your Bible on one side, have the book on the other, and a pen in your hand, ready to go to town and learn a lot of really good things, this is a great book. It's called He Will Reign Forever. It is by a man named Michael J. Vlock. Uh, Vlock is a teacher of theology down at Shepherd's Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. Uh, and he's done an outstanding job on this book. It is a larger, thicker book. It's probably in excess of 650 pages. It's one of those that you can do a reference on a certain passage that you're looking at. But he does an excellent job of making a case regarding the kingdom of God has always been God's plan. Now the reason why this would be important is because many people see that salvation is the end-all be-all. All it is is get saved. In fact, you maybe you've heard people say sometimes, now I'm saved, now what? Or now I'm saved, so what? And a lot of times that ends up being the failure of the church getting along with the brand new believer and discipling them into maturity so that they understand that things are much greater than just getting across the threshold of heaven. That's not what it's about in totality. That's only one small piece. And so my goal today is to hopefully walk through a little bit of the information from last week, because I'm not going to go ahead and take for granted that everybody was here last week, so that you get a running start into this, and then we're going to take a look at the very first dispensation that God unfolds for us in Genesis. So if you look at Ephesians 3, verse 1 and 2, let's pay close attention to what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It's one thing to read it. And if we were doing just a cursory reading through the Scriptures, we would be in deep trouble for not stopping and studying this out to understand it. For this reason, for what reason? For the reason that Jesus Christ has put Himself forward as not just Savior, but as the peace that causes formal <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> racial divides between Jew and Gentile, to become brand new, unified, and one in the church. The church is something that God has never done before. It is never talked about in the Old Testament. And it's not really understood until Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Spirit, something brand new happens. Jesus refers and alludes to it here and there in the Gospel of Matthew a little bit. But Matthew's concern is mainly about unfolding the kingdom. If the king has come, why is the kingdom not here? And it answers that question through all 28 chapters of that book. So now you have this brand new thing, the church, that comes forward. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship. Everybody see that? Stewardship. Dispensation. Oikonomia. For some reason, my pens want to give me a problem. That looks terrible. Stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, given to Paul for you, Gentiles, that by revelation, I remember revelation, ta-da, pulling back the veil, opening back the curtain so everybody can see that it's really some guy back there and not the Wizard of Oz, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, something that's always been true, has previously been concealed, but at God's appointed time has now been revealed. That is the church. As I wrote before in brief, earlier in the letter of Ephesians, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, OT, other dispensations, past, was not made known to the sons of men as it has now, present, been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, the Gentiles are one, fellow heirs, man, this pen is terrible this morning. Maybe it needs to be sharpened, I don't know. Fellow heirs, nobody thought that was fun. I heard one giggle. It's a digital pen. So if I sharp, never mind, okay. I'm worried what you guys think about me when you're at home, okay? <laughs> I heard somebody say, you don't want to know. <laughs> Great. Love you too and pray for you often. Here we go. Fellow members of the body and three, 
fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power, that's the revealing, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration, the dispensation of the mystery which for ages, I'm not even going to pronounce it. Mary Cooper let me know my Greek pronunciation was terrible. So I'm not going to do it. Which for ages, what is it? What is it? Ion. Ion's how you say, hold on. Calm down, Sherry. Good grief. What is it, Mary? Ion. Ion. Forgive me. I was saying aeon. Forgive me. Ion. Aeon. That's, that's Italian. I don't know. Anybody? This is going to be an awesome service today. Just to let you guys know. Okay, Sherry. You're back on. Here we go. (laughs) Which for ages has been hidden in God. Which for ages. Okay? Past dispensations. Old Testament. Very important to understand. Who created all things? Why? So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Now. The church. It's the present. The church dispensation. To the rulers, everybody see this? And authorities in the heavenlies, heavenly places, okay? Rulers and authorities, celestial beings who have been given charge of the nations in order to rule over them according to God's standards because He is the Creator and everything else is a creature. So they have automatically a responsibility with the Lord of which to be faithful. Now, as we go forward, and especially as we get into the issue of the Tower of Babel, we'll unfold this whole demonic situation that's taking place, okay? This was in accordance with the eternal ion, there we go, purpose, which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Now, let me run over this just real quick, okay? What are the essentials of dispensationalism or understanding it? When we talk about this, we're talking about how we interpret the Bible. How do you read the Bible? That's really what it boils down to. Number one, they are inerrant, free of error, have no falsehood whatsoever. So therefore, God's Word is the authority over all things. It doesn't matter what it is. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness three times, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, He referred it always back to the authority of what God has said as the means to disarm Satan. Let me tell you a a, a little thing that might help you. When we are dealing with spiritual warfare issues, it's not any different today. We are to have the Word of God hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against Him, and we're to have it prepared on our tongues so that we can speak it forward because it is the first of two offensive weapons we have in spiritual warfare. The other one is prayer. And so the way that you cut through the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the enemy, the temptations that he throws forward is you bring out God's word that solidifies an eternal truth about who he is and what he has done and his affection and promises towards us to disarm Satan. It is the authority. Number two, the scriptures must be understood in a literal fashion, taking the words for what they plainly say and interpreting metaphors and figures of speech as the original author intended. If Job had it going on a certain way, if Esther has it written a certain way, if David wrote a psalm a certain way, it's David's intention that we have to be most concerned about. What did he mean when he wrote it? They're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So you're not going to find a contradiction. But if we fail to rightly divide God's Word by the dispensations He's revealed, we're going to find ourselves trying to keep the law and erecting tents out in a desert somewhere in the Middle East. It's not a good way to go. And what it does is it overshadows the blood of Christ. We've got to understand how that happens. Which brings me to the next one. The Scriptures are a progressive revelation. You start in Genesis, you move forward to Revelation, it all unfolds and you learn more as you go. 
The next one, and by the way, you have all this in the little handout that's inside your bulletin. I tried to make up a little cheat sheet for you to bring some of this stuff up, and all this is on the back of it. And if you notice, man, I, I went crazy on paper, okay? We killed a couple trees this week. It's okay. But you've also got you part two, what we're going to be covering today, sitting in your chair. If for some reason you didn't get it, send me an email, let me know, or contact the office and let us know so we can print more and get those to you. The Old Testament is sufficient. I don't need the New Testament to reinterpret the Old Testament to say, that's not really what Moses meant back, back then. He really meant this, and this is only because Paul tells us here. No, I don't read the Bible backwards. I read it forwards. Old Testament establishes how I understand it. New Testament is an outgrowth or a progress from what that is. But the Old Testament meant what the Old Testament meant when it was written. That's important. Number five, the scriptures teach a distinction between Israel and the church. They are not the same groups of people. How do we know that? All the Old Testament, mainly, is written to Israel. It deals with the national people and their problem of hard-heartedness and rebellion against an almighty God who has gone above and beyond to love them completely. Then you move into a situation where because of their unbelief, they kill the very hope that was sent for them to bring in their kingdom. This is why Jesus' ministry at the beginning of Matthew says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's not the message in the Gospels. It doesn't happen there. Only John speaks of belief in that way. Jesus' message is to the children of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel, saying, I am your Messiah, I am your king, and if you believe in me as a nation, I will bring in this kingdom. The whole Bible is kingdom-focused, every bit of it. It's all pointing to that end. But if we don't recognize the difference between Israel and the church, Israel fails by killing their Messiah. God decides he's going to do something new. So he sets Israel aside for a moment, starts the church, and brings these people into the church who were following him during Jesus' earthly ministry. We both have future in the Jesus' kingdom. The last one, the kingdom of God is the pinnacle purpose of God in history and eternity. Salvation is important. Let's never downplay that. But it's only one area leading to the intended end of the absolute rule of King Jesus over everything. So if you look on your piece of paper that you have, here is a really good, working, concise definition. Probably the best one I've found so far. A dispensation is a period of time. They don't all have to be the same. Well, this one only lasts 100 years. Well, this one only lasts 100 years. Well, this one only lasts 100 years. It's believed that possibly after the first dispensation, there could have been about 1,700 years, maybe more. Okay, so let's, let's not, let, let, let's not uh, say, well, it only can be this. That's not the point of the dispensation. It can only be this long. That's not what it is. It is a period of time because it happens in time, during which God is testing man's ability to govern the earth. That's the point. And oikonomia is the idea of how are you going to steward God's possessions as he's given them to you. Now, we all know this. Any of us that have ever tried to, keep, to, to teach a child the value of money, you're teaching them stewardship. Take some of these missionary cards home. And when you're teaching your kids about money, put these missionaries in front of them and let them know these people live off of donations that people decide to graciously give through prayer and consideration of their ministry and teach them what it is to part with their money. That's so important to understand. We're teaching them good stewardship of what it is to support ministries. Well, that's what this is. God's essentially saying, creation, I'm giving you responsibility here. How will you govern yourself? And we're waiting to see answers over time. Now, let me give this to you, the pattern of a dispensation. Number one, God gives a responsibility. You have this written down, but if you want to take notes, that's great. You know what? Let's do this first. Are there any questions? Because this is all last week's stuff. Are there any questions that anybody has? I want to make sure and make that possible. I would rather go slow and everybody get it than get through it and you go, yay, we're done with that, on to the next thing. That helps nobody. What you're going to find is understanding dispensations, you're going to be able to understand your Bible from beginning to end. It's going to be way more easily accessible to you. So that's the reason why we're taking the time to go through this. Any questions at all? Excellent. Wow. I'm that good at explaining it. That's good. The pattern of a dispensation. Number one, there's a responsibility. God is over everything. 
But what's interesting about God is He's always looking to share. He's always looking to give. And just like you'd be training up a child, you start to entrust them with little things. There's little things that you would want to help them out with. You show them how to do it. You hand it off to them. The simple fact that we see that Adam is able to name the animals shows God distributing some of his authority and allowing for Adam to have a say-so over something. God didn't name the animals. Adam did. He gave him the ability, the right, the opportunity to exercise his free will in doing that. So there's an entrusted authority, a stewardship that is handed off. Number two, there's failure. Somewhere along the way, human beings always fail at the responsibility that God entrusted to them. Number three, there's a judgment, and it has to be. God, being perfect in justice, cannot allow for sin to just run amok. He has got to come in and he's got to deal with it decisively. He cannot allow for holiness and justice to be infringed upon without somehow it being met perfectly, and only God can do that. So he sees that justice is administered. But number four, grace takes place after the judgment. God always demonstrates his unmerited favor despite the failure in the trusted authority. There's always something of blessing and goodness on the other side of them. Every dispensation in Scripture fits this pattern. This is how you know. You go along and you recognize it. We simply read the text and we, we document. Observe, observe, observe. What do I see? What do I see? What do I see? This is what you find. So let's talk about the first dispensation. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1. The first dispensation is in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, you have an overview account of God's verbal creation of the earth. What He decides to do, when He decides to do it. I'm going to say this as well. I have these papers, these charts. Some of you came in, you noticed they were sitting in a little stack of them on the ends of your rows. There's some here. There's some on this end over here. There's some on this end over here. And they're meant to cover a broad spectrum, which means, yes, you might have to get up and share with your brothers and sisters. That's okay. But if you would like to fill these out, I encourage you to do so. It's an easy way to do it. Sometimes people frown upon dispensationalists because they, they chart everything. Uh, we just see the logical continuity of the Bible and know that God's a logical God. I don't think there's any reason to speak against that. So you're able, if you notice, you can see my little chicken scratch on there. I've already filled out the first one. This is a very simple way to go through and keep it all together. So if that's something you like to do, in fact, let's do it real quick. Just raise your hand so you can get one. There you go, up front here, up front. Who has them up front here? Who has them up front? Okay, guys, I'll do it. Uh-oh, what'd I break? Oh, it's okay. Here we go. Got it? Is that, was that hers? Okay, we'll get her one later. Where else do we have them? Extra one, here we go. Community project, guys. We good on this? Back at, whoa, this whole group got dismissed? All right, we're the extra one, folks. Extra ones. We'll take as long as we need to. My wife's in children's church. I can leave her there. It's okay. Who else? <laughs> Dude, she's prepared. Okay. Fantastic. Who else back here? Anybody? 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 Here you go. There we go. Anybody else? Anybody else? Going once. Going twice. Whoa. There we go. We got it? Got it? Got it? Yeah, don't don't point for somebody else. You don't know that they want one. You have good intentions, I understand. I don't know about me, but Carl needs one. He's been hanging out at the bar this year. Oh, sorry. There you go. Anybody else? We're good. There you go, sir. Thank you. Anybody else? Fantastic. Team effort. PREV. Yes. Yes, sir. I'm I'm done with you guys. Okay. <laughs> We're past that, and chances are from this experience, I'll never say that word again. So moving on. I'm done with you guys. All right. The very first dispensation is called innocence. So we want to put that in our box. Innocence. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Pay attention to the language. Slow down and observe, observe, observe. I read this a million times. Great. A million and one, it's going to grab you. Okay? 
We don't ever want to get so familiar with the text, we don't read it anymore. So here we go. Then Elohim, that's what G-O-D, capital G, lowercase o-d is. Elohim. It's the generic name for God. It's a general use of God. But it's the idea that recognizes Him as Creator. Elohim said, let us, notice that's plural, make man in our image. Plural again. And the idea of an image here is a representation. According to our likeness. Here it is. And let them do what, church? Rule. There it is. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Does everybody see this? Notice. Rule over, 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 over all the earth. All of it. Can you imagine being Adam at that moment? I mean, can you imagine? We're going to make him. Here it is. Male and female. Look at them. They're beautiful. They love each other. Probably making googly eyes. I mean, who else were they going to fall in love with, right? But seriously. Let them rule. Over what? Wow. Really? Can they handle it? Don't spoil it. Shh. Just think. But think about it. Wow. The very one of the very first things that got in fact, before they're even created, God's saying, let's let them rule. Before creation of us even takes place, our commission is to have dominion. Some of your translations say dominion. The idea of dominating or to rule over something, to have it in subjection to you. Notice it says after that, God created man in his own image. Never said that about anything else. No animals, no fish, no birds, nothing else was ever created in the image of God. We have been created in His image. Notice, in the image of God, He created Him male and female. He created them. Notice that man is a heading of which male and female fit in. But here's the interesting thing. Notice what it constantly says. Created, created, created. God wants to be very clear. He is the Creator. Ultimate authority ultimate lordship. He is the sovereign owner of all. And yet when He creates, what He wants to do is distribute. He fashions us carefully in His own image and likeness. Remember this. He fashioned us understanding that one day His Son would have to go to the cross. And so He created a perfect representation and made us all as He deemed fit so that His Son could one day inhabit that body. It's very careful. It's very precise. And he's very meticulous about what he wants us doing. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. That word could actually be translated, bring it into bondage or arrest it. Throw cuffs on it and bend it to your will. That's what we're supposed to be doing as those who are to have dominion or to rule. Notice, and rule, same word as verse 26, over the fish, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now this is not a novel concept, and this isn't just reading into interpretation. You've got this on your paper, but we look at this real quick. Psalm 115, 16. The heavens are the, uh, the, heavens, are the heavens of the Lord, Yahweh. His personal name. It means the self-existing one. All caps, L-O-R-D. But the earth is creation. He is given to the sons of men. How about this one? Psalm 8, verses 4. You can just look up here. Write them down. You can look at them later. What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. Does everybody see the ruling regal idea? You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You create it. You hand it off. Man rules. 
Men and women are to rule in this stead. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Does that sound like Genesis 1, 26 through 28 to you? Sounds just like it to me. The rulership that is to be given. Now, turn over to Genesis 2. Maybe you just need to go down and look and watch this. And this is a bonus, but we have to understand what this is so we understand how it all went south, okay? Then, all caps, Yahweh, and when it's located, when God is located next to this, Yahweh Elohim, then Yahweh Elohim, the self-existing creator, formed man of dust. That's important to understand because that's what we are, all right? Formed. Body. There's our body. From the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's spirit. The breath of life. And man, look at this. And man, body, intaking God's breath of life, spirit, look at this, became a living, everybody see this word? Look in your margin. Look in your margin of your NASB. Notice it says a living being. You've got Mine's got a little number one. I look over there to the side. Literally, soul. In fact, right next to that, if you want to put 1 Thessalonians 5.23, body, soul, spirit. It's important that we know this. It's been a while since we covered it, but for all you noobs out there, we want to make sure and get it, you newbies. So here we go. Body, spirit, soul. Watch this. There's something about body and spirit when it comes together becomes a living soul. The word for soul is also the word... It's suke, yes. What's it mean? Life. It's suke in the Greek. It means life. It's your very life. It's how you steward your being. So, we are a trinity. You may not know this. You may not realize this. The $5 Jeopardy word is we're trichotomous. Okay? Trichotomous hippopotamus. Try saying that 14 times fast. Okay? Here we go. We're body on the outside. Soul in the middle, spirit at the very core. Spirit is our awareness of God. It is the part of us that most resonates with God. How do we know that? Because the very breath of life that was breathed into us was by God. God is the one who did that. So it's the innermost part of our being that resonates in God consciousness with Him. This is what makes someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior so concerning and should concern us about sharing the gospel with them. If the Spirit is the very innermost person of somebody who resonates with God, and that God is not the Creator who specially made them and formed them, what are they resonating with? See, this is why you can't get upset at pagans for the way that they act. And real quick, I say that as a general term. A pagan is anyone who just doesn't know Jesus is their Lord, okay? So that idea, you got to get concerned about it, but you can't hold that against them. They're not held to a standard. They don't have any sort of, I don't know what else to say. Like I can't even form it in words. Whatever we're expecting of them, we're expecting too much out of a lost person. Because they don't have a God-centeredness. In fact, when you come to faith in Jesus, you believe in Him, the Holy Spirit comes in here with our spirit, cleans house, sends everything to goodwill, and decides that he likes it so much after having renovated it that he moves in. He makes it his own. And so by our spirit, we are absolutely holy. The spirit is an awareness of God. The soul is the awareness of self. When we deal with the idea of our suke, we use that mainly in the Greek. It's where we see this formed out a little bit more. But notice that God does this just in the second chapter about how we're made up. It's the idea of, number one, our minds. What do you believe? How do you think? Not talking about our brains. Our brains are hardware. It's talking about the software, how we've been programmed. What we're convinced is true at any given moment. I love the fact that everybody just sat in their chairs and didn't test them. That's my favorite example. Because I'm just dying for the day when somebody falls out on the floor. You're like, that's mean. No, but think about it real quick. If you fell out on the floor, would you be surprised? In fact, it would be odd if somebody fell out on the floor from a faulty chair and said, well, I knew that was going to happen. Why is that? 
Because their conviction, they believed in their mind and their thought process, this will hold me no problem. Everybody see that? It's what you believe is true. It's what you believe is tangible, foundational. Notice your will, your determination. In fact, somebody wrote a book on that. The Strong-Willed Child. Yeah, Where does that come from? The soul. It's their soul. They are determined to do it. Buddy, it's not a good idea. I don't care! You ever had a two-year-old scream a high pitch in your ear? Yeah. Yeah. What? No, I'm just kidding. It's terrible. And your emotions, the feelings that pour out. In fact, we've talked a little bit about the F train. We're going to talk about that when we get into chapter 4. We're going to use this as our example to explain what he's saying there. And it's the idea of making the mistake of letting our feelings run our life. Where does that come from? It comes from the soul. That's where it comes from. The soul is connected to the Spirit. And so the greatest thing when we're talking about walking in the Spirit, we are walking in the truth of God's Word so as to have our minds convinced of what He says, having our wills doing what He says because we're so convinced of it. And when we're obeying Him and doing that, we're walking in the Spirit and our emotions of joy and happiness and peace flow. Why do that? Because we're in total alignment with what God is doing resonating with our spirit. That's how that works. We're in tune with the Holy Spirit. Now we have this. Let me say something about this real quick. Our body. The outside. What comes in contact with the outside world? It's sensory. Dealing with a lot of that. So it's where we get our world consciousness from or uh, our awareness of what's around us. Our surroundings. So sometimes you'll hear people talk about the eye gate, what they receive in. You'll hear people talk about the ear gate, what they hear, and how that influences because we're receiving it all in. Well, understand this. The body is also the expression of everything that moves from inside out. So recognize this. Anytime that Satan is wanting to come about and tempt us in some way, he's usually trying to attack us from the outside in. He's trying to come in through here or through here to get to us, or he's using the flaming darts and he's chucking them in our minds to try to get them rooted in our thinking process. And if he can get us to think according to that, he will lead us astray. He's a, he's a pro. He's been watching us for years. He knows how to do it. What we do instead is we hold fast to the word of God. We know his word so that we may not sin against him. We talked a little bit about that earlier. And in doing so, it solidifies our spirit in God's word. And in such, we operate from the inside out of that. In fact, the greatest way to combat the things of Satan is to be obedient to the Word of God. Why? Because when you're obeying, you're not sinning. That's important. So, we look at this here. Spirit, soul, body. You need to know it for one reason alone. This is where we always go wrong. Where do we go wrong? Here. That's the problem. Now, notice at this moment, there is no sin in this situation. Does everybody see that? This is what Adam looked like. His mind is thinking according to what God says. His determination, his will wants to be along with God. His emotions are nothing but happy and joyous. How can you not be happy and joyous when you're walking around in a perfect environment with the God and creator of all things? It's excellent. It's perfect. But here's one thing that we know. There's a free will in play. Notice this as well. The Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden. We're running a little bit on time, so I'm going to go a little faster. And there he placed a man whom he had formed. He places him in a garden. Now watch this, okay? Out of the ground, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, caused to grow every tree that is... See this word right here? That's not a bad word. God's going to plant it, and guess what? You're going to like it. And he already knows that. He doesn't have to ask. Do you like green beans? He doesn't have to ask. He's going to plant those green beans. Why? Because he knows you like it. It's going to be pleasing to you. Now here's why this is important is because sometimes we run the risk in the church of saying the body's bad, the body's evil, the body's mean, the body's what causes me to sin. No, the flesh nature is what causes us to sin. The body is not bad. The body needs to be controlled from the inside out, spirit, soul, to body. The body is not bad. There's some people, uh, uh, ascetics, you ever heard of asceticism? Disciplining and depriving the body in some way because it brings you closer to God. It doesn't. I've heard about monks in the 3rd century who sit up on poles for days on end. Weird. Don't do that stuff. Why? It doesn't make you holier. 
It doesn't make you more loved. It doesn't make you more saved. It doesn't make you more obedient. It'll make you real grouchy. Good grief. Don't irritate yourself more than you need to. Live in the grace of God. Notice that God is all about working in such a way as to where He desires for the things that He creates to be pleasing to us. This is why we're commanded to rule over all of creation. Why? Because it's all to be at our disposal and it's to be pleasing to us. It's not a bad thing. Notice to the side, it's good for food. Everybody say, mmm. Right? Now I'm convinced. I don't know for sure. No, I'm not going to go there. Forget it. No, because I want to make a barbecue joke and nobody thinks it's funny but me. Moving on. Now notice there's the tree of life that's in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees. Make sure you pay attention. Two different trees. Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the first dispensation? Or sorry, what is the first part of the dispensation? Remember, a responsibility. Adam, I'm entrusting the stewardship to you and Eve. Do a good job. Okay? Handle it well. Handle it like I would. Because we are commanded to be his viceroys under him. Little rulers under our sovereign king. Look at verse 126. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Rule over, 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 over. This is the one we need to be worried about mainly because it spans everything. Over all the earth. Notice that the animals are brought up separately. The earth would include everything that is considered vegetation, everything that is considered trees, grass, whatever, skies, all of it. All of it is supposed to be under that. So that's a responsibility that's given. Rule. Rule well. Okay? Yahweh Elohim commanded the man, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Does that sound like an oppressive God to you? Does that sound like a prison warden just kind of tapping his baton out there? No. It sounds like an incredibly gracious and giving Savior. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like a good creator. Eat of anything that you want to. It's ponderosa. Okay? Do they have any of those around here anymore? That was it back in the day. Western sizzling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They give you those little plastic plates, but it had the metal middle. And man, your steak was still sizzling. I loved it. Yeah. Mm. So, you might tell I didn't have breakfast this morning. All right. Notice. But... From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, notice that's tree B from what we saw earlier. Everybody remember that? Not tree A, tree B. You shall not eat. There's the prohibition. For explanation. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There's the consequence. Rule well. Eat anything you want except for this one tree. Don't eat from it. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? What is the unfaithfulness, the failure that takes place? Genesis 3.6, look at that real quick. Now watch this, okay? This is important that you get this because it's lined out perfectly. When the woman saw, everybody see that? That the tree was good for food. Okay? Notice what it says. And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that it was desirable to make one wise. Watch this. It's good for food. Mind. It's a delight to the eyes. Emotions. It's desirable to make one wise. Everything that encapsulates the soul. That's where Satan went for temptation. God surely hiding something from you. What? What's wrong with this fruit here? I don't understand why because it's on this tree. It's not like that was like the weird blue tree out of all the rest of them or something. It was just a tree that God simply said, don't eat of that. It's that easy. Well, what happened? Well, God said this, but let's think about this for a minute. It looks good. It could make me wise, which is something I probably need. I don't have that right now. And I want it. There's something in me. It's an itch. It's got to be scratched. So she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now, if you want to write this in the Bible, you can. Where were you? 
Where was Adam this entire time? Why was he not speaking up? In fact, one of the great problems here, and there's a lot to be said about the snake, if you're interested in all that, we have the Foundational Framework series online. You can listen to it from our website and and listen to the first few sermons and you'll get this out of it. But here's the thing. This entire situation that if they're rulers and they're in this smaller vicinity of Eden and eventually by being fruitful and multiplying, ruling over all of the earth through procreation in that way, Adam already rules over the snake. What was his problem? He was failing to rule well. He didn't assert the God-given authority in his situation. He didn't lay down the law. He didn't man up. And instead, he let his wife get trampled by temptation. So she turns around and she eats. Now, let's not be hard on the ladies. No one told her not to. No one reminded her not to. In fact, she, when she repeated the command to the serpent, she added to it, she was already befuzzled some way. That's what happens when somebody comes along and questions God's word. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. False answers. When they should have been proactive as ruling and having authority, they now became reactive because they fell prey to sin. Have you ever been in a sin situation and all of a sudden you became reactive to everything? Let me give an example. It usually starts with what we like to call an insy, bitsy, teeny-weeny, little white lie. And then you find out that after that lie, you got to tell a second lie in order to cover that up. And then you got to get another lie in there in order to get that to make a little bit more sense. And, well, I don't know how that happened because such and such did that one thing that did that stuff and things. And then all of a sudden, you nonsense. We become reactionary. Why? Because we let sin in the door. Instead of us taking a hold of it, casting it to the ground, and saying, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God has said about that situation. Now here's the problem with this. Was Eve like, man, we already picked everything else out here. What are we going to eat? Was that the problem? No, it wasn't that the abundance of God wasn't available. It's that the selfishness of the soul was too much. Recognize that. Because when we sin, it's the exact same reason. The selfishness of the soul. Number three, what is the judgment that takes place? We have to go through this quickly. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go. The dust you will eat the days of your life. When you see a snake crawling on the ground, it is meant to remind you of the problem in Eden. That's why God left that there. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. That's a death blow. And you shall bruise him on the heel. This is what's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the idea of the very first administering of the Gospel. Notice early on, God is already telling us what the solution has to be. It has to be a divinely supplied slayer of evil. That's the first thing that God has put forward in Jesus. He has got to kill evil. That's the problem and that's what's got to come after. Why? Because every dispensation is going to fail because of sin. And that's God's point. It says here, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Way to go, ladies who have not used an epidural. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I could preach five sermons on this. That doesn't mean, oh, he's so pretty and cute. Look at his muscles shining in the beams. No, that's not what it is. It means that lady, I'm sorry, Jay. (laughs) Thank you that I could get a drink of water at your expense. (laughs) It means that ladies, you're going to try to overthrow your husbands in running everything. You're going to look at him as your enemy rather than your lover, your friend, your companion, your one flesh. It's part of the curse. Then to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, it wasn't a bad thing, it's just she wasn't on the same page as the truth. Okay, guys, don't go home and say, God says I don't have to listen to you. Stop it. 
She's wiser than you are. Pay attention, okay? Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Notice that the earth suffers because of sin. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. You're going to have to work for your food. Farmers, farmers, you know it. You see it. There's a lot of hard sweat and work that goes into that. Running a farm day in, day out, early, late, sore, everything. It's a result of the curse. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because you were taken. Uh, For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Where is the grace in this? Well, here it is. Number one, it's the giving of the gospel. It's needing an evil slayer of deity for God to put forward. That's what we need. So there's the grace first. I'm not going to leave you hopeless in this situation. Can you imagine if Adam and Eve sinned and he was like, well, we tried and walked away. Here's the thing. Would he have been wrong for doing that? No, he totally could have done it. Why? Because that was the responsibility. And that's what makes his further involvement after such terrible disappointment, grace. Even though you've messed up royally, I'm still there with you in the thick of it. I'm still willing to work with you. I still want to talk with you. I still want to make things better. I want to supply the means of getting your head above water because the only person holding the shovel in this situation is you. God still wants to be there. God still wants to be thick in the midst of all of that every time with us. That's just who He is. But notice this, Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He took two animals because of their sin. He killed those animals in front of them, blood everywhere. And then he skinned them. Now I'm pretty sure that God hadn't created Ginsu knives yet. So what in the world that may have looked like to the first two people watching this take place in front of their eyes? He is painting a picture of what their sin does. It kills. The wages of sin are death. And he pulls that off and he takes those skins and he says, because somebody else shed blood and died in your place, I'm using what they have and covering you with it. Is this not a picture of what he did for us in the Lord Jesus? Then he says, then Yahweh Elohim said, behold, the man has become like one of us. In what way? Already image and likeness, but notice this. Knowing good and evil. Let me spell this out for you because this is next week. Conscious. Now knowing what is right, now knowing what is wrong, and now having to make a choice between the two. Beforehand, they didn't have that knowledge. Now they do. They know good and evil. Now watch this, what the possibilities are. He might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life. That's tree A. And eat and live forever. See that dash? In other words, now that they've taken of this and they've sinned, And now they're in a situation of separation from me because of that sin. They might take of the tree of life, and if they eat of it, they will live forever, eternity upon eternity, in a constant, perpetual, sinful state. Where's the grace? This dash here means forbid the thought. Don't even let the sentence continue anymore. Don't say anymore because it's so terrible. It's so horrific. I don't want to hear it. And so the Trinity makes a decision. Therefore, Yahweh Elohim sent him out from the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, more than one, I am is the plural in Hebrew, and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Because if they tried to approach the tree of life in their sinful state and so live forever, perpetually sinful, God would rather have them dead than eternally unredeemable. That's grace that he does that. That's the first dispensation. God giving a stewardship. The royal failure that we're all readily familiar with because we're taught this from very early on. If you heard it for the first time, great, come talk to me. I love that. But notice that God has to judge that. But in doing so, he shows grace by blood, atoning for the sin, Covering, put it upon their nakedness, but also driving them away from the possibility of further harming themselves and not even knowing that they're doing it. That's a gracious God. 
Let me leave you with this quote, very interesting quote. I found this and got excited. I made my wife feel the page of the book that it came out of. It's like, it's a page, it's an old book, I get it. I think it's cool. While God's government of the world has undergone several changes, which we, following the example of Paul, term dispensations, still these dispensations vary as they may in laws and conditions, are ever constant to one main object. They all combine to prove that in no conceivable circumstances is man able to preserve or recover his integrity and to save himself from corruption, that his sole hope lies in the direct interposition of the eternal and so wondrous infusion of the Holy Spirit that an entire change is wrought in his nature. In other words, we can't govern ourselves and apart from God getting involved supernaturally, we are damned unredeemable forever. So notice the love of God that reaches beyond wrongdoing and desires to dwell with His people. He created us. He loved us. You want to talk about value and worth. This is where it's at. And even when we mess up, He desires to be faithful in those situations. Even when we're faithless. No, i got a great quote for you guys next week. No government or stewardship of responsibility ever will ever make it unless there's a direct conduit and submission to God, period. That's the only way it'll work. And this is what makes, when we see it in the future, the coming of Jesus so special. Let's take a moment, let's pray. God, this is a lot of information. But I pray, Lord, that you will give us quiet opportunities to reflect upon it, to go over the notes, to go over the Scriptures, to commit them to our quiet time. Help us, God, to recognize where we fall short and that You haven't abandoned us. You stick in there through thick and thin. But help us also to understand that all the problems we would ever have in this world are cured by Your doing. It's Your involvement. And Father, if that doesn't create graciousness and and thankfulness in our hearts and just a a grand appreciation, we need to rethink exactly how we're thinking about life. I know many of us are probably so bored at existence. So, So many of us are probably disappointed in much of what we come encounter with. Maybe there's just this unsatisfied longing in us. We were created for a purpose. And that purpose is to be realized in the future when He comes. So God, work in our hearts, refresh our minds, make us follow ground for your teaching. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.